Welcome to our latest FinFeed podcast. FinFeed brings you all the latest in market-moving ASX small cap news, as well as interviews with innovative and groundbreaking company leaders and entrepreneurs. Here to speak with us today about the digitization of the healthcare industry is Matthew Cherian, CEO at Global Health Limited. Global Health is an ASX-listed leading provider of digital health solutions to this Australasian healthcare industry. Matthew, thanks for joining us today. Can you give us a brief intro into your background and how that led you into the digital healthcare space? Sure. Thanks for having me on the show, Jonathan. Much appreciated. So my background is in software engineering fairly some time ago. And our involvement in health, particularly developing software for health, started about 30 years ago in the early 90s, primarily in the hospital space. So which is a good thing because it gave us exposure to probably the most complex part of healthcare, which is hospitals, delivery settings, I should say. In the noughties, or when the internet took off, we realized that uh, healthcare being so information intensive was really ripe for doing things differently with the advent of the internet. It's taken a while, 20 years. Mm. That's understandable, actually, because healthcare is a very slow-moving industry because you're dealing with people's lives. So we fully accept that to impose change and implement change in healthcare it takes a long time. That's been the experience we've had. Yeah, that's, that's the background. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you. Did you find, I mean, you mentioned that it has been slow to, to evolve, I guess. Did you find that there was any blowback from old institutions holding on to old ways or or has there been i guess the knowledge that that needed to happen but it was going to take time i think like any like any industry you're going to get blowback or you're going to get resistance from people who are dominant right they don't want to cannibalize their market share so that was natural but having been in it for 30 years i've seen the same thing happen with mainframes when i first started in computers there was Amdahl and, you know, Unisys and ICL and a whole bunch of guys that don't exist anymore because they weren't agile enough to change to the new world. And the next generation did exactly the same thing, you know, with Data General and Wang and Prime and all those guys not cannibalizing their market. So, yes, that's, that's just a feature of, you know, of disruption. You're going to get resistance from the incumbents. So we thought, you know, we've been spending about a million dollars a year on a suite of, of platforms, SaaS platforms that we knew had the potential to disrupt healthcare in a major way. We thought it would take another five years and all the research we'd seen had said that by 2023, by 2025, you know, 60% of, consu- you know, it's, it's going to, all disruption happens by, are driven by consumers. It's generally not driven that easily by suppliers. Mm. So, yeah, even though there was resistance from the incumbents and, and people with dominant market shares, I think COVID's changed all that. It's reduced the timeline from what we thought was five years to probably five months. And wow. that's been fantastic. It's just been so busy. It's not funny. You know, the demand for our portfolio is skyrocketed. The other benefit we have is that, sadly, is that the major part of our business is actually case management for mental health. Right. And with COVID, we've had two of our, you know, two lines of demand that have just gone through the roof. Mm. Uh, nice yeah, I mean, to have, sadly. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's the thing. I guess you would have seen, mm. you know, obviously there needs to be a change in, in the broader healthcare industry, but mental health has been forefront of this lockdown and people not being able to, you know, losing their jobs, not being able to work, being kept at home. How have you seen that, I guess, affect people, this lockdown affect people? And how can global health help in that way? Yeah. So we've always had this very strong, we're fortunate in our first clinical systems were actually for mental health. 
back uh, in the early 2000s for the Australian Capital Territory, who are still using our applications, by the way, mm. as are most of the hospitals that we had as customers in the 90s. So the reason I say it's fortunate is because from the get-go, we developed a clinical system that helped a team of providers look after you and me as consumers. Mm-hmm. Right? So our strong focus is on people that live with lifelong conditions. You know, mental health is, is a classic example. It wasn't, it wasn't the case 12 years ago, I can tell you. But in the last 10 years, it has just gone crazy. It's probably, you know, for all the reasons other than COVID, you know, yeah. living online, you know, and all kinds of stuff. So with people who live with lifelong conditions, you actually have to have a case management system, if you like, that involves a team of carers for the rest of your life. Mm. You know, you want psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers. Sometimes you need Centrelink and Department of Housing. You know, it's, it's a complex problem and it's costing the economy billions. So what we've seen, we're not in the front line, we, but we get feedback from the front line, which influences, greatly influences what we do with our applications. A lot of the emphasis is moving from, from healthcare in particular locations to healthcare anywhere. Healthcare right. being dispensed at home or other than a hospital or a clinic. And that's, that's why you know, this telehealth video conferencing stuff has taken off and everyone is saying, let's keep it that way. You know, a yeah. lot of doctors don't really want to have a waiting room full of infections. And a lot of patients don't want to walk into a waiting room full of infections, you know, and yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess in terms of telehealth, it frees up the system so much. You mentioned that a lot of this change was consumer driven. Is that one of the consumer driven changes, do you think? Or will consumers now drive that change further? From the research we've been doing, consumers are going to direct care more and more over time. I think it's already happening in the US. Mm-hmm. It's certainly happening in Asia. And I'm sure it's happening here, you know, whether it's Dr. Google, or whether it's home monitoring devices or wearables, or, you know, more awareness of the fact that, you know, we need to avoid these lifelong conditions. Consumers are the ones that are actually directing the direction of care, you know. Mm-hmm. It's great in the sense that healthcare cannot continue the way it's doing it. Yeah. It's just unsustainable financially. And so I think this disruption will reset a few things. Mm -hmm. For the funders, whether it's governments or insurers, they want to move away from fee-for-service. They want to move to population-based health. In other words, you're paying providers fee for outcomes rather than time and materials, if you like. Mm -hmm. And that's why that was the logic behind my health record, really. It was the government's record of my interactions with the healthcare system Mm -hmm. so that they can get good data and evolve models of population-based health, as they call it, right? The interesting thing for me is that you're no longer talking about a population around like, say, Bankstown or or Geelong. You're actually, with, with telehealth and the technology, a provider sitting in Geelong can be a psychiatrist or a psychologist can be conducting treatment to someone that's in the Kimberleys or Cairns or, in fact, outside Australia. And yeah, I think yeah. that's the big opportunities for the providers. The providers suddenly find, suddenly are not constrained by the four walls of their clinic or the four walls of the hospital. They can now reach out to populations in need of servicing from across the world. A lot of parts of the world, especially in Asia or developing economies or growing economies, have got a huge shortfall of trained healthcare resources. So I actually see telehealth, if you like, as a huge opportunity for the healthcare industry in Australia to grow phenomenally. 
yeah, in addition yeah. to the fact that consumers are going to be much better off. Yeah. Yeah. Just looking at, at my health record, I mean, I'm one of the few people that probably thinks it's a good thing. <laughs> Why do you think there was so much, I guess, blowback and angst towards it when it was first announced? When it was first announced was back in 2011, right? Yeah. There was some good consulting done by, you know, Booz Allen or I can't remember the name, whether it's Booz Allen or McKesson's or... And they had mapped out digital journey for us for digitizing health, which involved connecting the sector first and then providing good tools for clinicians and then getting consumers involved last. That was, that was a 15-year plan, five years to connect, right. five years to improve clinical decision-making and five years to get the consumers engaged. But somewhere along the line, that got reversed. And a lot of focus was on getting the, my health record, which was called personally controlled EHR back in the 2012 days, right? Yeah. And the problem was it was not mandatory. And if you hadn't connected the sector, how do you get data? How do you get reliable data in and out of the repository was a problem. So mm-hmm. I think it was ahead of it. it, was, it they did it in the wrong sequence. So a lot of the blowback was from providers. And, and some of it might be the fact that, you know, if... Jonathan's record is available to anyone. He's, he can actually visit anyone. That, that lock into your local GP is not there because your new GP can look up your history on my health record. So they, some, of, some people might have felt that was a threat, but I think most clinicians actually like the idea of, a, of being fully informed about Jonathan and Matthew when we go and visit yeah. them, right? Yeah, so I think, yeah, it's a good, I, I think it's a good idea, but it's, it's, the audience is clinicians, whereas our product, LifeCard, spelled with a C, our audience is consumers. Yeah. You know, we want to, in, you know, we integrate with your wearables, your devices. It is not just about your encounters with a GP. It may also involve encounters I might have with my Ayurvedic or, you know, provider or Chinese medicine provider or whatever, right? And it's, and at the end of the day, I'm the best source of my mm. data. So we're coming at it differently. We see it as we very strongly focused on the consumer as being at the center of the health ecosystem. You got providers and there's about half a million of them in healthcare and you need to get them both engaging. You need to have you and me as consumers working with our care providers. Yeah. Yeah. To the same outcome. Yeah. Yeah. Just on LifeCard, how did that come about and what does it do broadly? Okay. So LifeCard actually came about in the noughties. You know, when, when we embarked on this digitalization of healthcare, we saw the need for two platforms, which we still have. One is LifeCard for patient consumers, yep. and the other one is Hot Health, which is for engagement. Right. Now, LifeCard was trialed in the 2006 to 2010 period, and it had very good results. You know, we actually had this project called Better Diabetes at the Royal Children's in Melbourne, mm-hmm. where patients from, say, the country Victoria could ring helpline in the Royal Children's Hospital, and they had access to LifeCard and all the encounters that patient had had. And so they could make a decision and consult with the family. This is juvenile diabetes. And rather than have to say, you know, put him in an ambulance and get him down to, you know, Melbourne, a lot of the education was done over the phone. Mm. That was, so what happened, we then parked it, put it on the shelf for a few years because my health record was coming out and we wanted to get that, see how that went first. And in the last few years, we just, relaunched it, you know, with mobile first and, you know, smartphones weren't around in 2007 that much. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, we had the opportunity to get it right. And we've, we've just updated the technology. So all our SaaS platforms are been designed to work on a mobile first. Mm 
Right. So you have health anywhere, anytime, any device. And it's very strongly managed so that if I'm a social worker, I see what I need to see to help Matthew. If I'm a psychiatrist, I see probably a lot more so that I can also do my part, if you like. So it's, it's very strongly team-based. And I, as a consumer mm. of LifeCard, I can actually grant permission to whoever I want for however long I want and for however much of my health record to have access, to have view access or management access to my clinical data. So, for example, if you're a lady that was expecting, you might want to grant permission to your ONG specialist mm-hmm. to have access to your health record for 10 months. But if you're a 55-year-old man who suddenly, who's, who's slowly getting some chronic disease, you don't necessarily want to share the fact that you had some depression 10 years ago with everyone, right? So yeah. I think that's very important. As a consumer, and that's where LifeCard is different because LifeCard, I own it, I manage it, I decide who gets to see what they get to see. It's multilingual, by the way. And it uses, you know, the standard industry way of government approved way of sharing information. It's all encrypted and and all that sort of stuff, you know. So LifeCard is about me and interacting with the health system, you know, my management plan, my appointments, my vaccinations that might be coming up or my Mm -hmm. PSA tests. So it's really about empowering me as a consumer to to be a bit more active about managing my health. And that will indirectly help the funders of healthcare as well, because hopefully I don't deteriorate into insulin dependent diabetic not that I have any, but if I, if I had type 2 diabetes, you know, yeah. and you want to make sure that I don't deteriorate into insulin dependency as long as possible, right? Yeah, yeah. I guess that kind of self-monitoring is the way the world is going with all sorts of things these days. Do, do you think, obviously, it's a great thing that, that, that that's happening, but do, do you think there are dangers there where, where people, because you mentioned Dr. Google the others earlier. Do you think yeah. people might go overboard with, you know, self-diagnosis? <laughs> I think so. Absolutely. I don't know how you stop that, you know? Yeah. I think it yeah. might be a generation or two, a generation of usage of the stuff before we get it right. But yeah, I mean, there's a lot of fake news as mm. the, pr- the president of the USA likes to call it, you know, and yeah. uh, <laughs> there's a lot of fake news out there. And yeah, that is a threat to, yeah. but yeah. hopefully, you know, you, you get to the point where you go and see your, qualified clinician and he or she clarifies things for you yes yeah you also mentioned uh, i guess the, the the rise of mobile phones i mean that sort of evolution has helped your kind of product and helps life in in many many ways in terms of connection i guess when you when you talk about depression the ability to be able to you know have a zoom conversation or ring people yep. on, a, on a smartphone that, that that kind of decreases that a little bit In terms of smartphone use and the way, I guess, as a tech person, you have seen, you know, technology evolve into smart devices and things like that. What is your take on that sort of evolution and where it's heading? Yeah, hard one. Yeah, hard one. It's just, I think we've seen enough evidence of it already where, you know, there's so much technology that helps us make better decisions. And once there is more data available, the next big disruptor obviously is going to be AI and machine learning, isn't it? And the next stage after that is something they call precision medicine or predictive medicine where, you know, I can imagine that in 10 years time, my genome will be analyzed and my management plan for me will be prepared when I'm born, right? To yeah, say this, yeah. is, this is what Matthew's propensity to diseases and health, mm. adverse health conditions is. Yeah. And this is how you, you best manage it. You know, imagine if you mm. knew you had a you had a propensity towards depression or something else. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, it'd be inter- interesting times. I guess one of the things that, that's also crept up and, and one of the things that you're concerned about is cybersecurity, especially with yep. data management. What are the issues there? How can we protect that data? Look, I think, I think you'd be pretty naive if you thought that you can't get hacked. If you're on the cloud, you, there's a good chance you're going to get hacked. Yeah. So you can take all the precautions you can, and we obviously do regular penetration testing with third parties to make sure that all our SaaS platforms and mobile apps are as solid as they can be. Mm-hmm. But if you have a very large network, for example, a public sector network where you have access to my health record from you know, possibly 200,000 locations across Australia, then mm-hmm. you, most hacking happens at the periphery. You know? mm-hmm. So if you are accessing a central database from 100,000 locations, you're probably, in my simplistic way of thinking, you're more exposed to threats than you are. It's just me on my phone looking at my data. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know if that answers the questions. But, yeah, it's, it's going to happen. I mean, you're always at risk. You're always at risk if you're in the cloud. And that's probably another reason why you don't want these large centralized databases, which are more attractive to hackers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I guess if you have a product like LifeCard, you still might be at risk, but at least you can, I guess, protect your data in some way, protect, you know, how that data or how you are using that data. Correct. Absolutely right. I mean, you're not affecting the providers, the clinicians, mm. you're just affecting my record, my data, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Whereas if you, if you get hacked at my health record, I mean, you level or something like that, mm. you're probably disrupting the entire health yeah. system. Yes. Private yeah. and public. Right. Yeah. 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 I guess look, looking at it overall, I mean, what do you see as being the future of the healthcare industry in a digital world? Gee, I wish I had a crystal ball, but <laughs> I like to think that it means that the consumer becomes more aware of his, the best approach to staying healthy, staying well. I think it's a huge opportunity for clinicians to extend their market, their catchment beyond the local, you know, there's, there's, there's a general rule that there's 6,000 pharmacies in Australia, there's 6,000 general practices, there's 6,000, you know, six, so obviously people are organized around geographies, right? Yeah. And I need 10,000 people to set up a clinic that's viable sort of thing. But now I spend a lot of time in Southeast Asia because, you know, we love the fact that Australia is so open to new things. But at the end of the day, if you've got a business model like ours, which is all about consumer empowerment, you really want to extend to those countries with much larger populations. And we've always felt that the developing economies were a better opportunity. And in my visits to the Middle East or Southeast Asia, ASEAN, it's amazing the shortage of good resources and the high esteem that Australian healthcare is held. Right. You know, we have got the best, we've got the best healthcare system in the world, if you ask me, right? Mm. And when I go to Vietnam or Dubai and, and say, we from Australia and we support the Australian healthcare system, I don't have to sell credibility. It's like saying we do maintenance systems for Qantas, right? Um, yeah. Without putting an evil eye on them. Um, <laughs> so we've got a great industry that can actually tap into the world. And, you know, in, in one of the countries I visited, they have about... 3,000 psychiatrists, 2,000 psychiatrists for a population, or sorry, 200 or 300 psychiatrists for a population that was bigger than Australia. Mm. We have about, I don't know, I think the Australian Psychological Society has about 30,000 members, right? 
right. you include psychologists, mm. radiologists, you know, the, even now, I think some of the major providers like of pathology and radiology actually outsource the reports to the US or, or UK. Mm-hmm. So because you, all you're doing is you're analyzing an image or you're analyzing some cells. Yeah. So you don't have to be local. So how's digital health going to look like in the future? I think it'll be a global marketplace. You know, mm. it's like the Atlassians and the Ubers of the world, you know. Mm. It's very scalable because healthcare is the same. If I've got depression in Turak, it's the same as having depression in Timbuktu, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's the same treatment plan. It's, everything's the same. The only thing that's different is probably the funding model. And that's okay because all our apps are designed as a marketplace. Mm-hmm. So we encourage third parties to value add, you know, as you'd expect us to. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. 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 I just want to just look at the company briefly in light of what we've all dis- we've just discussed here. I mean, been a read over the last few years. Why do you think that is? And do you think that because there's, I guess, now more understanding of digitization in the world and digitization of healthcare, that that will, that has, you're starting to turn things around for you? Yeah. So there's a bit of history there because we were involved in some disputes which distracted us prior to 2016. Yeah. But so once that was settled, we had to fast track our vision of connected health records. Mm -hmm. And so we spent heavily into R&D over the last three years. I'm glad to say that they're all now in the market and we're expecting a positive EBITDA this year. We're on track to get a positive EBITDA this year and possibly NPAT as well. are always, you know, subject to audit. And, you know, you've hit that point where the recurring revenue is starting to, is growing quite healthily. So I think we're on the cusp of some really good things. So we've had... We were profitable for the three years prior to that. And then for the last three years, we've slowly, we've just gone Hollywood on, on R&D. Yeah. But we've used self-internally generated funds. I don't think we've raised capital. I think in the last 12 years, we've probably raised about $1.6 million, right? Which okay. is yeah. not bad compared That's to everyone true. else. Yeah. And so I, th- I see that changing quite significantly going forward as the market starts to hopefully recognize that we've, We've done the hard yards and we now have a set of solutions that are ready to market way ahead of everybody else. So yeah. it's really now about executing the market capture. Yeah. So, so, so just finally, what milestones can we expect from Global Health in the back half of 2020 and beyond? We've put a lot of effort into our patient engagement platform. So you know, online forms, a secure messaging, a video conferencing, online appointments, all the stuff that, that enhances the value for our providers. So we think we'll see a big take up of telehealth, a video conferencing drive some of our growth. Mm-hmm. Our business as usual will be driven by demand for our mental health application, which is at really record levels. Yeah. And I think we've also reduced our debt quite substantially. So we're paying off about half a million a year in debt. And so by in six months time, our debt will be down to probably $300,000 okay, great. from about probably 2 million five years ago. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. So I think things are moving in the right direction. We'd like to think that uh, we'll have a pretty good forward 12 months. Looks like everything's coming together for you. Yeah, absolutely. Matthew, thanks for your time. It's been great to speak with you. It's a pleasure, Jonathan. Thank you very much for having me. Stay safe. <laughs>